Hi, it's June Sarpong here. You're listening to the podcast version of Project Reset brought to you by Mission Winnow. For future episodes, either subscribe with your usual podcast provider or visit missionwinnow.com. In a few months, the world has rapidly changed. And we have an opportunity to use this moment to reimagine the world we live in forever. Powering transformation through bold thinking, big ideas, and brave action. This is Project Reset. Hi, I'm June Sarpong, and welcome to another episode of Project Reset brought to you by Mission Winnow. Today's episode is titled Be Careful. We are going to be looking at healthcare systems around the world and what the responsibility is. Is it about personal care or is it about profit? I'll be talking to leading experts in the space who will be telling us what they think and showing us what the future of healthcare looks like. Joining me today, uh, we have Nicholas Webb, who is a healthcare futurist and many other things which we are going to discuss in great detail. We're also joined by Dr. Raman Chowdhury, who's the Managing Director and Global Lead at Responsible AI uh, in Houston, Texas. And last but by no means least, we have Dr. Pritpal S. Tamba former physician editor at TEDMED and the author of the Community and Health newsletter. Well, it's so wonderful to have you all with us today. And really what this discussion is about is, is how prepared we were for COVID-19 and also how prepared we are for whatever the future holds uh, in the area of healthcare. So what I'd love us to do is to start the conversation by looking at the systems, the systems that were in place and the systems that perhaps should have been in place, knowing that a pandemic would fall upon us at some time, at some point in the future. So we often hear references to a nation's healthcare system. Obviously in the UK, we have the NHS, the US has Medicare and Medicaid. But what do we mean when we're talking about systems? Because it seems like we're referring to different things and different ideas of what a universal healthcare system can be or should be, depending where we are and who we're talking to. Um, so I think I'll start with you, Pritpal, because obviously you have a, a keen understanding of the UK system um, and now you live in Brazil. So again, having those sort of two perspectives, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think we should probably start by being clear about what we mean by systems, because if we're talking about systems for health, I think there are really three systems for health and not all of them are really well acknowledged. Mm. So the one that we all know is medical care. That's yeah. the sort of hospitals, uh, primary care physicians, GPs, that kind of stuff. Uh, we all know that one very well. Um, it's, the, it's the system that we talk about the most. The other system that is incredibly important, especially in, in regard to the pandemic, was the public health system. Um, and so that's uh, not as well funded quite often, even in the UK, it's not as well funded, especially in the US. Um, and, and that is the one that tries to keep our, us healthy before we might actually get sick and need the medical system. So those are two systems that probably, the medical one takes up most of the imagination, the public health mm. one, most people don't really know about. But the third one I think is actually super important, which is really the, the, the informal system of civil society. Yeah. Because in general, we actually just keep each other healthy uh, by everyday life. 
our choices, our lives, the circumstances in which we live in, research has shown that about 85, 80 to 85% of our health is derived from that, uh, with only about 20% coming from the formal healthcare systems. So I think as we're going to have this conversation, we need to be cognizant of those three layers. And if we talk about preparedness, we start, we have to start thinking about um, what each of those layers needed to do, but also how well did those layers interact with each other. And I think that's what is, hopefully we're going to start surfacing as we dissect this conversation. Brilliant. And Roman, I'd love to get your take on this too. I mean, you've set me up amazingly. So I'm a, a quantitative social scientist and we think mm-hmm. a lot about um, what in the medical field they would call comorbidities, but what I think of as uh, socioeconomic factors. One thing yes. we're seeing in COVID is that um, particularly low-income individuals and individuals of color are uh, disproportionately affected mm-hmm. by COVID, but we're actually not sure why. Like, is it genetic? Is it a, a function of the environments um, that people live in? Is it a function of the family structures or how people may live together or take care of each other in their communities? Um, in particular, in the U.S., I think there is so much um, difference in how people live from you know one part of the country to the other. I just moved to Houston, Texas, from San Francisco. Um, in San Francisco, I had a, a totally different way of life than I, I do here, where I'm more isolated, more separated, and I have more space to roam around in. Mm. Um, and an important part to think about in COVID as well is the psychological toll it's having on individuals. And again, especially people who live in cities who are accustomed to maybe smaller living spaces and then more interaction in public. And maybe that's what we thrive on and what we crave. We're no longer getting that sort of social interaction. So um, mental health has become something that folks are thinking about quite a bit. Very much so. And and picking up on that, Raman, I think the societal impact of being a person of color in the West also has on a person, why that would then make them at a such a disadvantaged uh, position when it comes to you know, survival rates of COVID. Absolutely. And to talk to the other two systems Pritpal had mentioned, we know in the US that black women, for example, are not treated as well by the medical system. We know that. um, As white women maybe, or other Mm. other individuals maybe. So it's definitely worth thinking of. And then when we think about building technology, because the field I work in is artificial intelligence and responsible technology, um, there is a lot to think about, about the historical biases and data that's going to be used to create, let's say, predictive models for reopening or creating things like contact tracing technology or anything else that doctors may want to use or medical professionals or epidemiologists may want to use to help them in understanding COVID recovery. Um, One project that I'm actually working on right now in a similar vein Mm. is actually taking a step back on COVID and asking, what is recovery? I think that a lot of governments, municipalities, and people are trying to navigate yeah. reopening without actually a good understanding of what recovery, what recovery should look like even yeah. means. For yeah. every area of society. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so Nick, it'd be great to come to you on this, if you could give me your overview of the, of the original question in terms of systems. Well, I think it's important to look at systems from their historical perspective. You know, we started by inventing um, ways to fix broken bones back in the cavemen and women days, right? So we had first aid is what we started with. And then we transitioned into infectious disease and we killed it literally, right? We came up with uh, vaccines and antibiotics and we were really bold once we started developing biomedical knowledge. And then from there, things started to take a turn for the worse. We transitioned into modern medicine. 
And that's where we really have to begin the, taking a look at how we fix this, because the genesis of modern medicine, and, and you know, I've been in healthcare for 40 years, I started my career developing medical technologies, and every day I would wake up and there'd be a sheet of paper in front of me that said, Nick, these are the third-party reimbursement codes. In other words, mm. invent to money, don't invent to human care. Wow. So I wasn't the only guy doing that. Everybody in healthcare was incentivized to do something to a patient. Mm. We want to get, we give them drugs, we give them, right? So, you know, then- Because that's where the payment was. That's where the payment was, right? Yeah. So if you don't look at the causality of the problem, it's really hard to develop a curative approach. Yeah. So we went from first aid to infectious disease to modern medicine to where we are today, which is what I call hyper-intervention, mm. right? We try to find cross-indicational uses, new surgeries, new diagnoses. Yes, 80% of all costs in healthcare are caused from self-inflicted chronic disease, but it's the humanity we everybody like right now in North America trying to get elected telling everybody to stop eating a double cheeseburger every day yeah. try getting elected <laughs> into that platform good luck with that right right <laughs> it's not going to happen but the truth the truth of the matter is is that that's where the opportunity is hmm. is to be able to provide wellness and health resources especially for underserved communities when you take a look at the disproportionate impact to underserved populations during hmm. covid we have to remember that yeah, we talk a lot about comorbidity, but oftentimes it's more about polymorbidity, where mm. patients have multiple things that are killing them. So yeah. let's have the humanity of this new target of innovation where we, we provide healthy food, we provide uh, psychiatric and psychological exercise. and mental health support, yep. exercise. Let's change the conversation. And mindfulness. So let's, I mean, and, none of Sorry. Let me let me let me change the conversation here for a second because because it's a, you're using a really clear term here, Nick. But I just want to ask you about this self-inflicted. For most people, the choices that they make are actually the best economic choices that they have in the circumstances that they live in. So Agreed. it's not really that they're self-inflicted. They're really that, that they've been cajoled Imposed. into making bad yeah. decisions. Well, right? I think that's true with the underserved population, but the preponderance of people have access to healthy food. I mean, I'm talking about the lower to middle class average American can make better choices, but your point is well taken, and that's why I added an asterisk to self-inflicted. And that's why I'm passionate about this, and we're working on building things like food pharmacies. But I can be but, able but, to provide... I'm sorry, but but I think even in those demographics, we have to be careful with terms like self-inflicted because I think that uh, you know you get a lot of people who start talking about designing choice architecture and spaces and all that kind of stuff. But if you've got an economic model that requires you to work like crazy, then you buy for convenience. You don't have time for exercise. You don't have time for family. You don't have time for a whole bunch of activities that are essentially salutogenic. And I don't th we don't even have to go all the way to the people suffering multiple forms of disadvantage. Like you say, we could sit in that kind of middle class space. I think they're squeezed. And I think their choices in their lives are squeezed without it being extreme. Um, and, I, and, and, you know, I think that we have to be really careful because we end up blaming the victim. Well, I think that that's true. And again, I'm I, I'm maybe doing a little tough love here because, I mean, if you take a look, and this is probably a discussion for uh, another four-hour discussion, but mm. when you do take a look at the, the psychodynamics in play, we also have to be careful not to completely alleviate self-responsibility if we're going to make the big shift, that, that, right? That, yeah, wouldn't you say, Pripal, that there's a balance? There's a balance that, of course, that certain lifestyles are designed in such a way that actually 
it's much more conducive to not be healthy, as you say, because it's about convenience. Yeah, so, I mean, so so that's a a line that's been around for a few decades, right? Mm. So like, and so yes, I mean, I can agree with you. I can I can agree with that philosophically. Yeah. Uh, but the evidence is in front of us, and actually, my uh, my sense of this challenge is is that when you actually spend time with people in living in these circumstances and yes. really ethnographically understand what life is like you realize that actually there aren't as many choices as people seem to think. Mm. A lot of people like us who have privilege, who live in environments where we can make choices, who have a good sense of our future, we're able to arm ourselves with what we describe in a kind of middle-class view as good decision-making. Mm. Um, that even of itself is accusatory language. Um, and I'm not suggesting that we have to make decisions for populations. I agree that people, people need to be able to enact their agency, but I think there is insufficient analysis of this problem. Mm. And there are lots of assumptions based on people like us, the four of us, who all have a significant amount of privilege in this discussion. Uh, and so I think there isn't enough analysis is what I would say. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I know one case example of this guy who was, you know, who had, you know, enough money to make choices, and this is a recent case study, and he was 25 pounds overweight, um, had a super stressful life, worked 16 hours a day, and um, you know, had all of the socioeconomic uh, benefits, of, but yet at the same time had a lot of the reasons to justify not change. I mean, that guy, that guy was ridiculously, I hate to say, he was kind of stupid. Right? I know it's a strong word. Oh, wait, that guy was me. I lost 25 pounds when I finally made a choice to be able to leverage what was available to me. So your point's well taken. Here in North America, we know that the only way we can do that is to change the economic incentives. Right now, doctors get three to four minutes. I mean, believe it or not, in North America here, we have people that are using the same methods that they use for fast food restaurants to plan patient flow to reduce the amount of time that the doctor needs to be in front of a patient. Could, I, that's, I'd like, that's tough. I'd like to bring you into this uh, part of the conversation, Ramon, because I think what Nick just touched on in terms of whether or not our medical care professionals were actually ready for what was coming because of the way the system is designed at the moment, where are we when perhaps a lack of preparedness becomes a lack of care? Because I think that's what we've seen play out with everything that has transpired in terms of some of the, the negatives around COVID and, and the way that the medical profession has responded. Ramon? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, thinking through this from a systems level, because we started off talking about systems. Yeah. Um, just kind of a few thoughts on the on the issues that have been raised. One is that, you know, Nick, you're absolutely correct. Medical professionals in our medical system is not designed for preventative care. It's designed to let diseases happen and then, you know, make treatment. lots and lots of money off of treatment. And sadly, um, they're not even the most incentivized to treat fatal diseases. You, you make more money as, let's say, a pharmaceutical company um, treating allergies because people who suffer allergies will live much longer than somebody with, uh, you know, ALS or some sort of a fatal disease. And th these are the economic incentives. And kind of, this is what happens when society is essentially in only structured around mm. economic benefit. Um, some of the things that people are working on in the field I am in are actually... Uh, how do you create metrics around human wellness and well-being, around human flourishing? So when we think about all this technology around us, that and, and again, I work in the field of artificial intelligence, so we're trying to think 50, 100 years in the future. The thing that's made me the most sad 
about the use of all these technologies is that we just use them to prop up and reinforce the existing failing institutions that we have today instead of a radical reimagination of it. So when we think about, for example, um, this culture of hyper productivity, we are significantly more productive than we were 15, 20 years ago, and I would say 30 years ago, simply because email exists. We used to have to write letters and memos and wait for a physical paper to return. And now, apparently, if you don't respond to your colleague halfway across the world in the next 20 minutes, uh, when they've dropped you a note, or even worse, they've sent you a chat, um, there's something wrong with you. So there is this immense pressure, immense pressure. You know, we, we are, and obviously the most vulnerable communities are the ones who are heard the least, but I can mm. give you an absolute one percenter problem. And these are folks like myself and my colleagues. It is mind boggling to me that literally while California burns um, and the air is unbreathable, all of my friends are working full days because mm. nobody can afford to lose their job. We can't, we don't have the system in place. We don't have a public health system in place that would support any of us. Um, a colleague of mine actually moved from London to Oakland and is now going back because she has realized that you know she can't afford to not have insurance and she'd never really thought about these things before. Um, yeah. So there are these massive systemic issues that incentivize people in a particular direction. Do you think that when you look at the handling of the COVID response, that actually this is something that should be led by healthcare professionals as opposed to politicians. You're talking to the right person uh, because my doctorate's in political science. So, there we go. <laughs> uh, what I would say is, you know, in theory, politicians are supposed to be the best people to be handling something like a pandemic because theoretically, they are responsible to us as citizens. We reelect them, we put them in office. The issue with it being uh, driven by purely by healthcare is that those can end up becoming private companies. Most public entities don't have the level of technological acumen to build things like contact tracing apps or mass um, individual tracking and tracing mo models. Um, and then they have to rely on private companies. You know, my iPhone just had an update from Apple to enable COVID contact tracing. Apple and Google got together and created the PET technology. None of this is being created by government. So really mm. the issue here is in order to manage the pandemic in a way that is in alignment with the times we're in today, we need significant technological intervention. Yeah. But sadly, the only parties with the sort of technological capabilities are, it's not just that they're private companies, there's maybe three of them in the entire world. So what my big concern is, where does this data go, right, mm. that we are all now handing over, um, our private personal medical information, our location information, mm. we're handing it over into the hands of private companies, what are they going to do with it? And what uh, happens and then, to it once exactly. that information and has what been happens to over. it? And then again, thinking Pre about systems of power and power dynamics, we are now beholden to maybe Apple and Google for our health, for our jobs and for our livelihood. Pripal? Uh, to go back to your original question, uh, and th those are great points, Raman. Um, to go back to his original question, should healthcare have led? No. Um, I think that we, wow. uh, we don't, you, don't, you don't elect uh, your healthcare leaders. Um, mm. the, as we're seeing in different places, the pandemic response is a social response. It's not just mm. about uh, mobilizing technocratic systems. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at what Sweden's doing. Uh, the public health leader in Sweden has said, um, look, uh, our health is as much, uh, the education of our children is as much as important to their health as it is about avoiding 
uh, exposure to a pathogen. Uh, um, you look at, you know, there are multiple kind of examples around the world. So for me, there needed to be a balance. And I think the democratic governments have been put in place or governments in general have been put in place. Hmm. Well, I guess democratic ones haven't been, but governments in general have the role of balancing different needs, education, right. economy, healthcare delivery, public health, etc. That's their job. Um, and I don't think um, at that moment, you should be diverting responsibility to healthcare professionals. That said, mm-hmm. at the very acute moment of uh, of the pandemic, quite frankly, when no one knew what was going on, yeah. when knowledge was changing on a daily yeah. basis, I think at that moment, you're probably relying heavily on experts. Yeah. But there comes a time when that balance has to come back and you have to start thinking about economy, yeah. uh, education, as I said. So, But my answer is categorically no. Okay, brilliant. Nick? I think that you have to, first of all, say what sciences or what scientists, what science, right? Because um, there are scientists that disagree with themselves in a very, very big way. And we watch it go by the news every single night, right? The second point is that there are two hemispheres to the causality and the intervention. One hemisphere is the area of who dies from COVID? And mm-hmm. the answer to that question is people who are suffering from comorbidity. So uh, the, the, the question is then, we know the science of addressing the causality. I think it should be a public health mandate to be able to address the core causality. I mean, duh, right? But I think the other hemisphere is, is that how do, we, how do we create the infrastructure? And even though I am a well-known capitalist, I believe that um, absolutely... Um, you can develop a public health system that uh, that is that manages those gov- from the government's perspective. I just think that um, uh, if <clears throat> if you leave it up to industry, bad things could potentially happen. So it, it is a political decision to be able to prepare for this by having mm-hmm. the right infrastructure in through public policy. But we also can't address this without addressing the the reality that a big cause of the lethality of COVID was based on comorbidity. So access to health care should be a basic human right. In 1918, the privileged echelons of society pertained to eugenics and saw workers as poor and inferior. So if they became ill or died from diseases such as typhoid or cholera, they believed that it was inherent to them rather than related to their abysmal living conditions. Now, what we know about the coronavirus is that it passes from person to person without consideration of their circumstances. However, we know that the impact is not the same. So what I'd love to know from you all is how are those pre-existing health conditions, and you've kind of touched on it a bit in terms of what we've just discussed, but how are those pre-existing health conditions going to have a precarious impact on the poor and for those that do not have the financial means to be able to access the best healthcare and the best treatment possible. So, um, Kripal, do you want to go with that one? Oh yeah, just give me the easy one, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I've just moved from the UK, which is sort of, you know, people in the UK think we're sort of world famous for having the National Health Service. I don't know how much people around the world think that. Uh, and I'm now in Brazil, which actually happens to be another country with a universal access healthcare system, actually one of the few countries in the world with a universally accessible healthcare system. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, but the, the way in which the, stru- uh, the system here has been devised in terms of healthcare delivery is that it's essentially two tier. There's potentially three tier. Now, I'm no expert 
um, on the Brazilian healthcare system. Uh, but uh, it's interesting to see the operationalizing of universal healthcare in a UK context to the operationalizing in a Brazilian context. Yeah. And actually the reality is, is the, the experience of accessing this universally accessible healthcare is that uh, it is uh, a much more difficult uh, for people lower down the yeah. income uh, bracket. And so there's something around if we're going to start talking about accessibility, there's something about the quality of the accessibility we have to start talking about. So first of all, I mean, clearly we have to talk about, is it accessible? And then people start talking about the quality of the actual care, but actually, what is the quality of the experience? So for instance, are you sitting in uh, waiting areas surrounded by people, unable to do social distancing, et cetera, et cetera? Like, is that the experience of your consumption um, mm. of healthcare? Uh, one of the interesting things we heard yesterday was uh, we were seeing the, our obstetrician um, and we go to a small clinic and what they told us was that even the best kind of the super duper hospital here in Sao Paulo is seeing a lot of their patients leave and go to this small clinic that we go to because the small clinic is able only able to process a small number of people and so therefore it's waiting so rooms. So there's socially so distanced, right, okay. Uh, and it's yeah. interesting because actually the, the, the hospital that they're leaving or they're not going is to better is hospital. considered... Well, it's supposed to be the best in Brazil, right? Mm. And so it's interesting that uh, people are making those choices. So I think that if we're going to start talking about access to healthcare, yes, there's something about the universality in healthcare. We say about the quality of care. You know, we start talking about that. But I think there's a sort of fundamental thing about saying, what is the user experience? Um, and in fact, in North Italy, when, um, you know, where, where COVID really took hold in North Italy, um, there was a very troubling letter from some of the doctors in the hospital in Lombardy, and I can't remember the name of the hospital, where they said health, um, COVID has become an iatrogenic problem, which mm. was essentially that people were turning, in, turning in up to the hospital and just infecting each other because they were in hospital. And they realized the place they shouldn't be was in the hospital. It's in the hospital, <laughs> yeah. But then the knock-on effect of that in terms of people not going to seek treatment for other illnesses for fear of catching COVID. Sure. Uh, and, it, and, you know, it's a difficult thing. You know, the answer is always both. And whenever you have difficult kind of socially, socially difficult problems, the answer is, always, do we do this or do we do that? The answer is always both. It's, it's both, really yeah. the expertise is around how do you how do you do that? What does it actually look like operationally? Uh, so my answer to that is around, you know, OK, it's not just about access. It's much more about what is that? What is the, uh, the experience of that access? Absolutely. Right. So, Nick, if you come in there. Obviously, we've been talking about privacy and we've been talking about data, which leads me on to my next question, because COVID is a global problem. What do we do with countries that are not democracies? Are we saying that what will need to happen is developed countries, once we have a vaccine, actually intervene in those places too? Because with this virus, if we don't sort it out everywhere, it's a problem still. Uh, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'd like to totally agree with what was just said, because um, let me just point, comment on that really quickly. You know, we need to deliver not just good quality care, especially to underserved uh, communities. We have to serve it in a way that's dignified and respectful, not to send them to the Department of Motor Vehicles where everybody else gets to go to concierge spas for their health care. Um, so I absolutely agree. And in fact, consumerization is driving massive change in the way, way, in, the way in which people access healthcare. So to answer to that question, again, I'm going to be very controversial here because I know that there's concerns in this group about uh, uh, patient privacy. Most people want convenience and speed 
over worrying about whether or not they're going to get their credit card jacked. I believe, and I, I I'm not sure I agree with that. And I'm going to bring Roman in after. Carry on, Nick. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, look, I'm asking for it. I, you, know, you came to the right place. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I, I, I think if you could, if you could put a six dollar in, uh, just ear, just like I'll wear one tomorrow, right? If you put one in my ear, and we're, we're doing this in our labs right now, mm. where you can get EEG data, core body temperature, a new body of research around what we call head movement. AI, voice AI, where we listen to modulation, voice inflection, and then that's connected to data that gives me continuous EEG data, uh, I mean EKG data, pulse oximetry, and the list goes on and on. In other words, 30, 40 biomarkers spooled into a, a black box that is constantly evaluating my, stel- my health to determine whether or not there needs to be intervention. If you could provide that to underserved populations that don't tend to get, that don't tend to get preventative care, so that we could find disease processes well before they become symptomatic. I think that's the future of how we're going to be able to scale. We could also do all kinds of other things. Look, I'll give you an but example. The, when I, go ahead. Sorry. What I was going to say was well, then that still comes back to the issue of privacy and whether or not that data can be used against them if there is something that is festering, as it were. So I, I think there's that's lots work, of I think that could be worked out, though. And when you look at the benefits of not dying. I mean, the number one symptom, this is a really troubling symptom, that you have a serious cardiovascular problem, death. You Mm -hmm. die, right? So the neat thing about anticipatory care is we can take a look at little micro trends across a range. When you go to the doctor, 50% of the time when you go to a primary care doctor, the diagnosis is wrong. You know, I work in a medical school, and when we graduate our students, they have two problems that they're going into. One is they're data starved. The other problem is, is that they're time starved, hmm. right? And so the only way to solve that problem and to scale the quality of care, this is about love and respect. This isn't about surveillance. Uh, it's just not. And I, if, just, if there is I'm, a way to leverage it, I believe that's the way to do it. Now, come Ramon, at me. Ramon, I'm, I, I'm, I'm bringing you in because I can see you're ready. I'm not even going to uh, ask you a question. Like, what do you want to say? Know, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I'm going to be perfectly frank. I don't know where to start. Go for it. Go for it. Um, You know, working with private organizations like healthcare to then, you know, figure out what your healthcare coverage should be. And oh, by the way, providing that to your employer. Exactly. Um, We have a history of tracking and tracing low income employees um, and them losing their jobs because of a misunderstanding of their current healthcare conditions. Uh, I actually don't think underserved communities want to have everything about them measured and put into a black box Uh, because increasingly low-income, particularly minority communities, know the history of Henrietta Lacks, know the history of Tuskegee experiments. They've not been treated well by the government. They've not been treated well by industry. Uh, So if we move on to vaccines. So a recent YouGov poll uh, found that a third of people would likely refuse uh, a COVID-19 vaccine or were unsure whether or not they would have it, particularly the first round um, of vaccinations. So does vaccination and anything that poses protection uh, to our universal and global um, healthcare systems, should that trump your right to choose in, a, in, a, in, in the case such as Corona, do we lose our rights and whether or not we actually take the vaccine? Uh, Ramon, do you want to start? 
And so I think what's interesting is if you look at, again, the history of vaccination, the polio vaccine, et cetera, um, one thing I find interesting about this moment in time is that this is even a conversation. And mm. I think what we have to think about is what has happened to erode our trust so much that we do not trust people to inject us with vaccines. Mm. Um, when, you know, if you are of a scientific mindset like I am, you know, if you've had nothing but positive uh, interactions with healthcare like I have, why am I even sitting here thinking, well, you know, maybe I don't want to be part of that first wave of vaccinated people? Um, I think the deeper question to ask is, you know, how have we gotten here? How have we gotten to a place in which it is even debatable um, and this is enough of a problem and there's enough mistrust in the systems. And then also, what do systems need to do to build that to trust back in the, the, trust, the public? Yeah. Yeah. I probably, I'm going to agree with that, Raman. Um, and actually, I know some folks who work in, uh, um, in the biotech sector who the entire scientific, international scientific team of that company uh, refused to be in the first round of testing while they were doing human testing. So, I mean, that said a lot. Um, and I was really surprised when my friend told me that, uh, that that was, you know, the level of concern at the speed of, of the vaccination. But in terms of, you know, does your, um, your responsibility to the public uh, space and therefore being vaccinated and therefore not being uh, in order to not be a carrier, how does that balance against your individual? I mean, that's been around for a while as an issue, right? And um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure where I am on that. I don't think I've done enough thinking about that. But I think that um, one of the things that you're, is, is turning up in the scientific literature is more and more commentary on how the anti-vax movement um, is probably getting stronger. Um, but actually, we've got to be careful because there are those yeah. that are just, you know, just are right over here and they're completely anti-vax and that's all they are about it. But there are people who are just kind of worried and legitimately worried. Um, including, you know, scientists like uh, if we go with Raman, Raman's example, talking about her own perspective just there and myself as well. So like even people who, you know, are informed as much as we are, even we're also worried about the idea of it. So I think this is going to be a, a kind of kaleidoscope of issues that we need to start thinking about within it being what is your responsibility to the, to the public space and what is your uh, individual choices. I don't think there's an easy answer right now. Okay. So Nick, who should fund the costs, who should bear the costs in terms of actually the vaccine and distribution? Should it be uh, the, should it be big, big business, big pharma, or really is this something that governments need to fund all the way, or, or, or a combination of both? Well, you know, I like, to, I'm sort of like my mom. I, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. That gives me the ability to argue with everybody. Right. So, <laughs> You've been doing um, that quite well today. I must yeah. Say. No, I listen, I'm totally setting you guys up. Um, I, I think that we have to, to realize that uh, we have to speak uh, the, the truth here and realize that hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent uh, to propagate ideas that um, that the, uh, the that the vaccine is going to be dangerous. I mean, that's a fact. Right. The point is that um, we have to realize the causality of the human sentiment, the sociological impact of tens of millions of dollars of media mm. spend on the idea. Mm -hmm. Now, me personally, there's no bloody way I'm going to be one of the first. I would rather I would rather take a risk, and that's just me being me. I don't have a, a scientific reason to believe that I should uh, should not get uh, vaccinated. I'm just sort of inclined to think that there could be some truncation in the process of going through the fast track methods. I don't think that there is a conspiracy to send out a dangerous uh, medicine. And I don't see that there is conspicuous 
uh, you know, abbreviation of normal processes when compared to other vaccine uh, approval processes. So with that being said, I think it should be pub, uh, funded through public health. I'm a, I'm a believer in, in the role of public health. And, um, and I do think, even though I, be, I, I believe in capitalist models, I also know that uh, you, know, you cannot um, leave this unfeathered to the industrial monster that is healthcare uh, to expect that it's always going to make the right choices. So if we move on to technology and uh, telehealth, um, what we've seen as a result of the COVID crisis is the way that technology has replaced so many of the things that we did in person. And that actually, to your point, Pritpal, looking at what you said in terms of the sort of economics of it all, that that was going to happen anyway. Perhaps it's the same with this. We were all eventually going to get to a place where so many of these services were performed digitally, and now it's just accelerated that process. Um, can we talk about telemedicine and, and how it differs in, in relation to sort of contact tracing? If we are going to offer uh, telemedicine, which, by the way, could be absolutely revolutionary for people who live in rural communities who don't have accessibility, who can't get childcare, et cetera. They also do then have to have the appropriate devices and connectivity to even be able to talk to a doctor. Mm. There, are, there are definitely certain advantages, um, that being one, another just being simple efficiencies. Um, I would say some disadvantages kind of lie in something that Nick touched on in the very beginning, right? The over-optim, and I talked about Taylorism earlier, the over-optimization of a doctor's time. So can you imagine like, you know, a given doctor now, it's like half hour, half hour, half hour, a Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call, Zoom call, essentially, and that's now how they see their patients. Now, I mean, a lot of my friends um, from undergrad and from, you know, from when I was younger are doctors and not a single one ever said what I wanted to do was spend my time on a computer talking to people digitally. Mm. Um, they've always wanted to interact with humans and get to know them as people. And we are sort of, and one thing telemedicine does do is sort of distance humanity from each yeah. other. As much as we try to make this as interactive as possible, there's, and there's so much research on interpersonal cues, right? And like little subtle shifts in our literal body chemistry and our language that is not displayed over a screen. And especially if you're talking about something like um, medicine and, you know, we've done a, a lot of conversation about other things that impact your health. Um, one thing, one example I can give you, like, what if somebody's being abused, right? And they're logged on to a telemedicine system, talking to a doctor, and they're talking about some sort of like stress-related condition or healthcare condition. Now in a private medical uh, setting, one-on-one -on -one with a doctor, Many doctors would be able to maybe pick up that they have these certain cues about them that maybe raise some red flags on whether or not their home situation really is everything it should be. On telemedicine, that probably would be impossible. Well, you know, we've done a lot of work in this space. And, I, uh, you know, in our documentary, we, were, we had a chance to do some research with Scripps down in San Diego. And Scripps had prepared the access to uh, telemedicine for their patients. And hmm. here, here's the reality of it is, is that they didn't deploy on it primarily because nobody really got paid very well for seeing a patient through a telemedicine consult. So the, the urban legend was is that telemedicine consults were subtractive and not additive. Then COVID happened, and then they went from five telemedicine consults per day to 3,500 telemedicine consults per day. Wow. Because we, we, have to, we have to look at two things. One is frequency, right, and one is duration. 
when mm. we're talking about, and we're doing, we're doing a program at our university and training physicians, this concept of training the physician of the future. How do we, change, how do we give them the time and the resources to, to really love and respect them and give them a dignified consult where we're really understanding them from an ethnographic perspective to improve the quality of care, right? So telemedicine, in my opinion, is not subtractive. And where we are today, and I know I'm the technology boogeyman here, so I'm going to give you guys some more ammo to come at me with. We're actually already developing head movement AI where we can have a consult with somebody just like you're seeing right now. And we can determine based on head movement, possible neuropathy, including Alzheimer's, lucidity, uh, dementia. Uh, We're using voice AI to understand inflection, modulation, tone, and key. That data is transmitted onto the screen for the caregiver, not in an evil way to, to tell their neighbors about what their head movements are, but to actually be able to understand richer levels of diagnosis. The average uh, primary care consult consists of somebody shoving an otoscope in their ear, taking their blood pressure, and checking and listening acoustically to their heart and lungs. We are not giving doctors enough data. So I think telemedicine increases frequency. It, it, patients that would otherwise not want to go in and see and seek care are going to get care. And the other thing that we're working on right now is understanding the persona of patients. A Hispanic patient that speaks a different language, that mm. eats different food and comes mm-hmm. from a different community. We're changing the way in which we lose, use le- technology not to hurt people, not to injure them, but, but to, to create... Enhance. Absolutely, yeah. and I don't think okay. there's any question about that. All right, All right so I'm gonna, I'm gonna to no, June, guess what? I'm gonna jump in. There's oh my God, here it comes. Go for it. What I was going to say was that um, that's kind of a joke amongst my European medical friends who've gone to the US and and now work in the US. And there's a joke that actually American doctors can't make diagnoses without multiple tests. And actually the art of medicine, the ability to connect with someone on a human level, to understand what's happening, what's really going through, and actually working out whether their biomedical issue is really their issue. Um, I, I sort of feel as though, and I'm not trying to be a romantic about this, I just think that actually there is an art to medicine. We mm. do tend to think that we have evidence on, on clinical conditions. We actually don't have that much clinical evidence. Um, and we don't have that many trials. And we don't have as much knowledge as we doctors think we do. And actually so much of it is about your ability to show empathy and relate. And I think mm. that some of that can be achieved. achieved over telemedicine, but we have to remember that there is, a, there is a pandemic within a pandemic, and the second one, the internal one, is the is pandemic of intimate the, partner violence, yes, that is not getting picked yes. up because people are not interacting with systems yep. with external people. So there's something around the art of the interaction that I think that we've got to be really careful about forgetting, uh, uh, about not forgetting a big and, part and, of And understanding of the value that that also has in relation to health. Precisely. Yeah. There are many upsides to this this change in how technology is advancing the way patients are served. Do you think that looking at what we've been able to create in the past, even when you go through all of the sort of teething stages and and weeding out the negative, in the end we get to the right place. By and large, where our health care systems are concerned we've we've gotten to the right place so in a way is what nick said true that actually there's a lot to be hopeful about oh i, I you can't work in healthcare if you don't have hope um there are so many issues and you have to believe that we're going to get to a good place but 
Um, and, I, and, and my response here is not in necessarily in reaction to Nick. I just think that um, we tend to oversell our technology. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been in this game a while now. And when I started, it was all about health IT. And then about sort of 10 years into my career, people started talking about digital health. Now everyone's mm -hmm. talking about AI. Quite yeah. frankly, you could look at all of the literature that's coming out, largely being generated by PR companies. And where it used to say health IT, they've now switched out a, a digital, they put in digital, then they, now they're putting in AI, right? So there's like the yeah. same story being spun. Um, and the, the thing that, you know, the thing that uh, I think we all have to have, and it's a societal conversation, right? So you need a futurist like Nick, you need people like me who are thinking about communities and realities of community setting. You need Roman who's thinking about the data. You need everyone. And then you also just need citizens. And we need to start having a much bigger conversation because technology can actually take us down all sorts of paths. The question mm. is, is, is are those the paths that we're interested in? Um, I am not interested in being tracked uh, endlessly. I'm interested in playing with my daughter. Um, and I know that actually being tracked endlessly may be incredibly beneficial to my health. I, I completely realize that. Um, but actually on many levels, I don't want it. Mm. Um, and, and I think that that's a conversation that doesn't get, doesn't take place, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I hope that, um, I actually hope that the, th the three of us and, and especially, I think, Roman and Nick can find, uh, maybe find some energy to create a space to have those different views in the room to start saying, yeah. what does it look like to have this yeah. disparate conversation? And what yeah. is this, you know, what is this in, for you guys in your US context and, uh, and me forever I am? Brilliant. Ramag, if I come to you on data, um, yeah, trying absolutely. to possibly put a positive spin uh, on some of uh, your concerns, is there not also, particularly in the area of AI, where we know um, the sharing of data globally allows the computer and allows systems to perhaps um, uh, assess that data together to be able to come up with new ways of diagnosing mm -hmm. and new ways of helping uh, mm -hmm. physicians find cures and scientists and so on. Isn't that worth it, knowing the, the positive impact it can have in terms of the solutions that are required for some of the ailments that are, exist globally? Yeah. I mean, so the, there's a few points to make. One is, you know, Nick, I don't think you're being a technology boogeyman at all. Like, <laughs> I am not coming in this as a doctor. I'm coming in this as somebody who develops artificial intelligence and has been a data scientist um, for many, many years. Um, what I do think is, uh, you know, more along the lines of what Pritpal is saying is that people are overly naive about what AI can and cannot do. Um, and as, you know, a person who designs it, I can tell you exactly what the limitations are to, for example, voice detection, image recognition, uh, emotion detection, a lot of things that are being sold as cure-alls. Um, and to your, you know, to your point, June, I think the question to ask really is, what are we optimizing for? Mm -hmm. What are the things that are mad, that matter to us? And, and Pritpal, I love the, the, the story you just told, because I think it's wildly true, right? We can live purely um, uh, aseptic lives where we are 100% optimized for individualistic health, right? Mm. And I think one very interesting cultural nuance we get at when we say things like people lead inefficient lives, absolutely, mm -hmm. but they do so maybe because they take care of their children yeah. or their parents <laughs> at the expense of their own health, right? And every parent will joke about how little sleep they got the first few years of their child's life. And maybe people who are childless would say, then why have a kid, right? I mean, you know, if you if you measure the metrics of it, it is useless to have a child. They are expensive. They are extractionary. They take. But but so why do we do it? 
because we love them. And it's a completely, uh, in a a pure metrics and measured sense, an absolutely bonkers, illogical thing for us to take care of our elderly and raise our children. How about that? And we do it. Uh, Expensive, extractive children. Yeah. I'm going to tell tell my kid that later. You're expensive. You're extractive. Yeah, but I love you. (laughs) But I love you. Nothing personal. Yeah. She's, um, she's, she's saving say, up for her therapy right now. That's right that's, now. I'm well, start. Nothing will have an AI machine that can do that for her. She won't even exactly. need to see there someone. There we go. <laughs> so I'm going to move us on to our final, uh, the final part of this uh, session, um, which is how health has moved on before. So obviously in the 14th century, uh, when the Black Death took hold, and and ended up killing so many people um, uh, around the world. That was really where the sort of modern conceptions of public health uh, was developed. And then if we go to 1793, yellow fever, and how that swept through the streets of Philadelphia and the impact that that had in how the founding fathers uh, looked at the social and economic um, political landscape in relation to health. And we go on and on and on right through to the flu pandemic and even 1942, the beverage report and how that report really laid the groundwork and the framework for what uh, became our NHS. So how will COVID-19 reset the business of health globally? Ramana, I'm going to start with you. What I hope, honestly, and you know, to put an optimistic spin on things, seriously, because mm-hmm. uh, I am an optimist. I think those of us who spend our time critiquing critique because we see how things can be better and we want them to be better and we see a path forward. What I hope is that, you know, there is more public awareness of science and how science works. I think it's very, very important. Nick, you, you had mentioned, the, you know, what is science? Let's talk about it. I think people had a very naive concept of what medicine meant, what science meant. And and these things are are conversations. They're evolving fields. It is not the expert coming in and telling you definitively this is a thing. Um, And I think then, you know, to your point earlier, Nick, as well, then hopefully people do understand that there is a personal responsibility to my life choices, what I do, what I eat, how I take care of myself. And that, it yes, the system should be enabling me to do the right thing, but I am not purely a victim, and, and most people are not, purely a victim of a system. And to an extent, many of us have have agency over our decisions. Mm. Um, so I am hopeful that the thing to come out of COVID is that we can have conversations about these things, this understanding and idea that medicine, science, et cetera, these are all evolving processes, and we should all be educating ourselves. We have amazing resources at our fingertips. We have this internet, and it was amazing. That did not exist during any of those previous uh, pandemics that you'd mentioned earlier. Which for was better developed or for worse. by governments. So again, absolutely. back to the, the idea of how public and private work together. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can go and educate ourselves in a way that was not possible before. I think COVID has greater significance because of the killing of George Floyd. Yes, no question. And I think the... And vice versa. And the killing yeah, of yeah, George yeah. Floyd has greater significance because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah, no and, and you know, I'm not a, I, uh, I'm not an African American. I'm not an American. Mm. Um, I'm an observer of that from uh, uh, afar. 
Um, but it, you know, this narrative around how people are black or minority ethnic, as we say in the UK, yeah. or person of color, as you tend to say in the US, um, the narrative as to why they end up having worse health outcomes has kicked around for decades. And there's really, no one's really double clicked on that topic and yeah. said, let's really get in there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, there's like places where it's happening, mm. but it hasn't become a systemic conversation. No. And, and unfortunately, you know, and this, this I mean, I, I only watched a small amount of that video and just said, I'm not watching this because it's a video you're never going to forget. But I did hear him say, I can't breathe. And this, we're in a time of a, a pandemic that's causing a respiratory illness. And so mm. there's a sort of uh, an unfortunate synergy Between that I two. think has really amplified yeah. this message. And, I, am I, and I'm going to be hopeful about this. I'm, I guess I'm not sure this is going to happen because I think we've seen too much in the past to show that it, how it doesn't happen. But I think mm. that if what COVID does is force us to really start having that conversation about how social inequity is radically damaging lives. And that some of that plays against racial lines, some mm. of it in the UK, especially is around class lines. If mm -hmm. that's what it leads to, it'll lead to some really difficult conversations. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But that, tra that trajectory is incredibly important. Yeah. And one that I really hope uh, happens. And I'm, I'm already beginning to see that narrative peter out. And so I hope there are people out there uh, finding ways to, to keep the flames on that going. Nick, you have been... Um... Uh, attacked is perhaps a strong word <laughs> throughout this conversation. So I'm going to give you the last word on this to hopefully sort of redeem some of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, look, first of all, you guys are amazing. And I, you know, I'm honored to be able to, to share uh, this experience with you because I've already learned so much. You know, I think that when we think about the effect of this, uh, really what we're going we're gonna to do is, you know, new vernaculars have entered into the, into the ether. Uh, one yeah. is comorbidity. Mm. When we think about, uh, you know, access uh, to health, you know, one of the things that happens here, again, you know, if, if it, uh, pol polit politicians don't get elected by saying, don't be unhealthy, they get elected by saying, we're going to give you more health care. Mm. And the healthcare industry when loves that. When you get that. sick. Yeah. When you get sick, that people don't yeah. realize that it sounds good, but at a deeper analysis, because of course we need to improve access, there, there's no question that that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But I think that the question we're not asking is, are we going to do take a more humane approach? You know, I, I've been developing medical technologies my whole life. My whole life. I mean, that's 44 patented technologies ago. And I can tell you, my target has always been fixing broken people. And the most broken people are underserved people. Right, so I'm hoping that we can change our innovation target as we go through this transition from focusing on providing gratuitous, horrible levels of, of inhumane intervention to being able to provide something that's, that, that is far more beautiful and far more humane, and that is health and wellness and, and, and mental support and, and the kinds of things that are, are really yeah, humane. I love that Paul talked about the experience. Let's, let's deliver humane, beautiful experiences and, and, and provide access to that. So I'm hoping, and I believe it'll happen because I'm very, I'm, I'm very much an optimist. I believe that we've changed the conversation in two key areas. One area is we're going to start talking about people that are dying, die from these kinds of pandemics. Let's stop people from being in the state of dying. And I think the other thing is, 
And again, I've been in the healthcare industry my whole life. I believe that what there does need to be, and I think Britt Paul would agree, and, and I'm sure that Ruman would as well, is that we really need to start having a discussion about what is the role of public health and how do we avoid uh, this kind of uh, latent response from ever happening again. I think, to me, that's what emerged and as, as humankind, we tend to invent around needs, problems, and opportunities. And hopefully that's where it's going to happen. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you all. Nick, Roman, Pritpal, uh, again, huge thank you. And continue the much needed work that you all do. Thank you. So that was another fascinating discussion. Health has monopolized our world, our media, our economy, and of course ourselves in terms of the way we engage with wider society. What we also need to look at is how we are cared for, but also how we care for others. And surely the COVID crisis indeed will change that. The world has changed radically and rapidly. And of course, we all have our own experiences, our own points of view. And so we want to hear from you. We want to know what yours are, what your ideas are, and how we can use this moment to reset and shape for a better future. So speak up and comment on our social channels, subscribe uh, to our channels, and of course, do check out the rest of the episodes too. Thank you.